I'll thank you again to our team for leading us in beautiful worship this morning. One of the, one of the sadnesses of this week, I don't know how many people um, have acknowledged this, is that as is typical of this time of year, in fact it happens pretty much around the same time of year every year, we tick over from summer to autumn. <laughs> I rather like summer. I rather like, for the most part, some of you are wearing shorts, I won't generally do that when I'm preaching, but that's just a personal proclivity. Um, I not, I'm not, uh, not particularly, I don't particularly enjoy cold, cold weather. Some people love it. Some people enjoy going to the snow. I find that a refined form of torture. Um, I'd much prefer to be uh, uh, sweating it out somewhere hot rather than freezing to death in those kind of contexts. Um, but I was just reminded this week, um, and we'll share this story, that again, when I was a young person, a very young person, at school, we used to have, um, I don't know what it was called, or some kind of book system where you'd get vouchers, not vouchers, you'd get uh, um, brochures that would sell you books at discounted prices, you could buy one or two and every now and again um, we were allowed to do that and one of the books that uh, I bought and read is a book, I'll throw the, um, the title up onto the screen, Great Polar <laughs> Adventures by Mari Herbert. I don't know if anyone's ever read that, Great Polar Adventures. And I can remember sitting on my bed, in my bedroom, in full sun, streaming through a great big window that I had, reading this book and thinking to myself, how crazy are those people who want to go and do that kind of stuff, you know, who, who were determined to be the first to reach the North Pole and put up with all of the challenges and the privations and the cold, the biting cold that there would have been in that context. I remember reading the story of Scott, who remember the guy who wanted to be, the Englishman who wanted to be the first to the South Pole. It's a rather sad story because uh, Scott had set out uh, in true Englishman style, we, were going, we are going to make this journey to the South Pole. They towed the sleds themselves, they didn't use dogs or anything like that. He set out to do that and and at the same time, there was another fellow by the name of Amudzen, a Norwegian, who, who ostensibly was going to go to the North Pole and set off to do that. Uh, on his way to the North Pole, heard the news that an American, whose name escapes me right now, uh, who's a good historian here? At any rate, um, uh, an American guy, uh, the name will come later on, doesn't matter, uh, alleges that he got there first. There is actually some dispute over who got to the North Pole first. So, Amudsen, the, the Norwegian, actually did a U-turn in his ship and said, well, if I can't go to the North Pole, I'll go to the South Pole instead. Now, bearing in mind that Scott, the Englishman, he was on his way to the South Pole too, and in true Englishman style, had posited his excursion, his adventure, his expedition as a scientific adventure. It wasn't just get to the pole. He was going to do all of these scientific uh, things along the way. And so, we've got these two guys heading in the same direction, um, Amudsen, the Norwegian, actually got to Melbourne and left a telex message to Scott to say, guess what, I'm on my way to the South Pole. My goodness, Scott was surprised to hear this and so began the race to the South Pole. And it wasn't a fair race because, as I said, uh, Scott and his team uh, were towing uh, their equipment themselves. Amudsen landed actually closer, physically closer to the South Pole and was using dogs. 
And so off they went and as it turns out, a Mudson got there first. And about 29 days later, Scott got there and there's a photograph here of the team when they arrived and don't they look happy? <laughs> How would you feel having put in all of that effort, all of that finance, the physical effort alone that they, uh, they exerted to get to the pole to get there and find the Norwegian flag flying happily in the breeze. Can you imagine the disappointment, the distress, the sinking feeling? What other words could we use in that space? Despair. It may have actually contributed to uh, their return journey turning out to be a total disaster because history tells us as Scott and his team returned, they ran into some quite... Uh, difficult conditions. They fell just a number of miles short of a supply dump. They just ran out of energy, they ran out of motivation, they ran out of capacity and uh, sadly they all perished. One of the great sad stories of polar adventure. I was lying on my bed thinking about, you know, there's a very good reason why you don't go to these really cold places. <laughs> now I'll tell you that story today uh, because I want to share some information with you that's equally disappointing and disturbing for some people. Brace yourselves. Baptists were not the first to think of baptism. <laughs> I know that's going to come as a great shock to some people, but believe it or not, even, the anti even, even our forefathers, the Anabaptists, who put up with all sorts of privations, all sorts of persecution, all sorts of uh, difficulties when back in the 1600s when they said, we believe the scripture actually teaches that we should baptise people as believers. The Protestant and the Catholic Church got on their case about that. Even the Anabaptists were not the first to think about baptism, baptism of believers. How about that? And you'll be sitting there going, ah, oh, yeah, well, David, that's the stupidest thing we've ever heard you say because we all know that John the Baptist thought about baptism before them, Right? John the Baptist way back there at the time of Jesus. Here's a newsflash for you, even John the Baptist was not the first. There you go. Because although we've talked on a number of occasions about the fact that in the Jewish religion, uh, as, as a sign of the covenant, circumcision was typically a sign of incorporation into the covenant, in the Jewish religion, even predating Jesus, predating John the Baptist, baptism by immersion was practiced by the Jews and they practiced it for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, for purification and there, are, uh, there is evidence of uh, some of the Jewish sects, sects like the Essenes who um, baptised people every day for purification but they also practised baptism by immersion when a person from outside the Jewish people came and joined the Jewish people. So if someone who said, I want to become part of your community... They were baptised in water. We have evidence of this. Uh, pretty much every Jewish synagogue that's been excavated around Galilee and those sort of areas has one of these. It's called a mikvah. It's actually a baptismal font, if you like. It's a place where Jewish people would take converts and baptise them by putting them under the water and bringing them out as a sign of them being identified with the Jewish people, with the covenant people. How about that? There's something interesting. And we thought we were the ones 
who thought baptism up. How wrong we are in that space. Well, today uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, baptism. Um, and as I said, one of the important elements of Jewish proselyte baptism or Jewish baptism of converts is actually the identification of that person with the community. Last week I spoke with you about some of the reasons that we practice believers' baptism. One of the things that I didn't say last week, and I've kept my powder dry for this week, actually, is that when a person is baptised in the context of the gathering of the church, not only are they identifying with what Jesus has done on the cross for us, not only are they identifying what happens inside when there is what we understand as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the transformation of their heart, they're actually being identified with the community that they're part of. And so typically we baptise in the church or in the gathering of God's people. Just as a little fun fact too, uh, while we're talking fun facts, um, the Greek word for baptism is actually baptizo, very, very similar. And from the very earliest days, the word baptizo actually meant immersion, being put under the water, being brought out of the water. So if we were to read a passage like uh, Matthew chapter 3, which uh, we might have jumped in my running sheet here. Um, anyway, we'll come back to that. Uh, when Jesus came to the Jordan, it, it really actually in the Greek, if it was a true translation of the Greek, it would say Jesus came to John by the Jordan to be immersed by John. One of the things that happened in history was when the English translation came to be done, the translators ran into a little bit of a problem. And the problem was that by and large the existing church had adopted infant baptism or baptism by sprinkling. And so they were scratching their heads going, well, if we actually translate this according to uh, the rules of translation, a passage like uh, Matthew chapter 3, for instance, should read, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be immersed by John, but John tried to deter him by saying, I need to be immersed by you and you come to me. And then in verse 16, as soon as Jesus was immersed, he went up out of the water. That would make sense, but it was a little bit awkward because to translate it like that would be stepping on the toes of all of the, uh, the uh, conservatives in the church. And so what they did was translate that word Greek baptised by actually not translating at all, but by making up a whole new word, baptism, and plucking that one in instead. Uh, rather than using the actual word that the Greek points to. Just a little fun fact for you. Last week I spoke about physical baptism. Uh, this week we're going to talk a little bit more about the baptism of Jesus. And this idea of identification that I've already mentioned to you is actually a really important one because one of the important uh, reasons, one of the important messages of the baptism of Jesus is Jesus identifying with the people to whom he came to minister to, the people he came to save. The baptism of Jesus is actually reported in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, and it's alluded to in the Gospel of John. And what that actually tells us is that it's important because all of the Gospel authors picked it up. If you read something in all three, you can say, wow, that's significant to all of them in terms of the story that they are communicating. So let's have a look at um, the story from Matthew, just as an example, but you can cross-check this with Luke and Mark as well, and we will refer to some of those verses today. This is uh, Matthew's account 
Uh, and I'm going to read just this little snapshot that's only just the account of Jesus being baptised. But as I said before, we need to think about it in the broader context, which is always a smart way of uh, understanding the teaching of the scripture. Let's look at this text though and it says this, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John but John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptised by you and you come to me. Jesus replied, let it be so now for it is proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, as we do spend this time in your word, we pray that your Spirit would speak to us, familiar words to us perhaps, but words that are deeply meaningful in terms of our journey of faith and, and who Jesus is in relation to us. We thank you, God, for the record of your word, for this scripture that we're looking at. Just fill it with your power, we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we know from history, if you back up uh, to the start of chapter 3, that John the Baptist appeared, almost it would seem out of nowhere, after what some would say was something in the order of 400 years where God had been silent, where there hadn't been a prophet, where there hadn't been an obvious word from the Lord. And so you can imagine when someone like John appears, let's just um, imagine what he might have looked like, someone dressed in the most unusual way, carrying the countenance of one of the ancient prophets, eating the most unusual food and preaching a very different message. You can imagine how interested people would have been naturally people who were a little bit hungry people who were wondering what god was up to people who by the way had experienced some independence back a few hundred years ago or not even so far back as that during the time of the maccabees but now for the last 60 years had lived under the oppression of the romans they were waiting to see what god was up to when will the messiah come what is god going to do when is God going to act? And then John appears on the scene. So what are you going to think? This might be it. Maybe this is the moment. This could be the opportunity that God's going to use. And so the scripture tells us that many people travelled from all over the place to go and uh, hear what John had to say. Despite the fact that he preached a pretty brutal message, people were drawn to him. We have a record of some of the message that he preached. Uh, the Gospel authors tell us that he preached this message to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but that he also preached it to the people. And hear what he said, and I'll just give it to you in, in, in my best dramatic voice. You brood of vipers! That's a good start, isn't it? How's that going to go down at the beginning of a sermon? Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. And don't say to yourself, we have Abram as our father, as though that's going to help you. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is ready at the root of the trees. And every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is going to be cut down. You know, if I started preaching like that, you know what would happen, don't you? Wodongran District Baptist Church would go down to this size. There might be one or two people who'd hang around. Probably not even my family. <laughs> and yet the people were drawn to this. They were drawn to this preaching. 
this preaching of repentance. It was a different kind of preaching and it was a different baptism. Because, as I said, in the Jewish tradition, there was the baptisms that took place in the mikvah, baptisms of purification, baptisms of identification, but John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And so people were interested, they were curious about what was going on. The scripture tells us that people were drawn to this and they asked the question, what should we do? What's, what, what, what is our response? And the scriptures, if you turn to Luke, in Luke chapter 3, for instance, uh, John says, well, there's some ethical demands that you need to address. And as a result, the people wondered even more, is this the Messiah? Is this the one we've been waiting for? Now, John was put in a bit of a spot. How's he going to respond to that? And John responds magnificently because both Matthew, Mark and Luke record his testimony uh, and it's a significant testimony. John responded by saying, I baptise you with water for repentance, but there is one who will come after me who is more powerful than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to tie up. Uh, he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What a message that is. Someone who is greater than me is coming after me. I'm not worthy to get down and even tie his sandals. He will baptise you with the Spirit and with fire. Now, some people will be going, whoopee, because I can see Acts chapter 2 here, right? The coming of the Holy Spirit. Wait a second. You've got to read the passage in its context. I've actually uh, understood that there have been people who've taken this verse and, and, and made hay with it, so to speak. Uh, in light of Acts chapter 2 verse 1 to 3 where the Holy Spirit did come at Pentecost and it filled the people with uh, an anointing and a power and it was accompanied with tongues of fire. Is that what John's talking about here? I don't think the answer is yes, I think the answer is actually something else. Because if you read this in its context, have a look at the next verse uh, and you'll see this in uh, chapter 3 verse 12 in Matthew if you've got your Bible open because here uh, John says... Having said, he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John's actually talking about two baptisms. A baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a transformation of the heart of the believer, and a baptism by fire, which is not a pretty one. This is not something wonderful to look forward to. This is actually a baptism of judgment. And what's actually being spoken about in this passage is not a foreshadowing of what takes place in Acts chapter 2, but a strong warning, if you like, or a strong prophetic message from John of the ministry of Jesus. Because when Jesus comes, there's going to be a great sorting out, a dividing of the people. There will be some, and John uses an agricultural metaphor, which is very familiar to the people, of course. Uh, there will be some like the wheat who will be sifted, the threshing floor. We don't do this anymore. We don't have forks to thresh stuff. We don't sort out grain from chaff and that sort of stuff. Um, I can't think of a time I've ever done that. There's machines that do this work now, right? But in ancient times, you had to do this. You'd sift it out and the wheat you would put to one side. Those who believe, those whose hearts are transformed, will be baptised by the Holy Spirit, transformed by God. But there is the chaff, those who reject the message, those who turn their back on Jesus they will be gathered up like the chaff and their baptism is a baptism of fire. Not something to look forward to, something that actually I think is spoken of in passages like um, 
Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through to 15. It's not a pleasant baptism, it's an awful baptism. So we have these two baptisms that uh, John is speaking of. One, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, something to be looked forward to, and the other, a baptism of fire, or if you like, of judgment. So now we come to that place where Jesus comes to be baptised by John. Jesus came from his hometown in Nazareth and came down to the river to be baptised. One of the questions we've got to ask in that space is, why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus go down to be baptised by John? Jesus didn't need to be baptised for repentance. What did he have to repent of? We understand very clearly from the Word of God that Jesus was without sin... He did not sin through his life at any point, so there was no point at which he needed to repent. So it wasn't a baptism of repentance. And as is the case with every event in Jesus' life recorded for us in the Gospels, there is some theological significance. And the fact that this one's recorded across all of the Gospels makes it even more significant. So let me just give you seven quick, uh, quick insights into why uh, Jesus was baptised by John. Here's the first one. Um, it was a confirmation of the ministry of John. In some ways, it was like Jesus saying, John, I put my stamp of approval on your ministry and your preaching. It was a confirmation of the ministry of John. Second observation, Jesus' baptism was to fulfil all righteousness. Now, that's actually significant because Jesus made this point. He said these words... Uh, it is right for us to do, let it be so now, it's proper for us to do this to fulfil all righteousness. So what was Jesus talking about in that context? Righteousness, by definition, is consistently living to a perfect uh, or an absolute standard. In other words, doing the right thing all the time. Now, in Jesus' time, what was the standard of righteousness? It was the law, the Mosaic law. And so when Jesus speaks about uh, fulfilling righteousness, he is foreshadowing that he would be the fulfilment of the law. His life would be a completion of the law. In fact, we know from the teaching of the scriptures that Jesus kept the law in perfection and his righteousness, his perfection in doing that is now ours. It's given to us, which is great news. Because that means we don't have to keep the law to be acceptable to God. And we can't keep the law, we know that. No one here is perfect. We try hard, we fail, we know that. But the righteousness of Christ has been given to us and uh, Jesus did that, uh, this uh, performed, uh, submitted rather to this baptism to fulfil all righteousness. It was part of the process of him fulfilling uh, the law. Third observation, again, quickly, Jesus was baptised to identify him with what John was preaching. In other words, that people did need to repent. You do need to turn back. You don't become part of the kingdom of God just by drifting into it. You've actually got to make a decision. You've got to make a choice. You need to repent and turn to God. The fourth point, I think that's what we're up to, Jesus was baptised to publicly identify himself with Israel, with the people, broadly, who he came to save. Similarly, Jesus was baptised to identify himself with believers. 
And similarly again, Jesus' baptism identified him with sinners. He acted, he performed, underwent that baptism in the same way that others did. I'm here amongst you to save you. I'm here with you. He identified himself with sinners. And the last point at his baptism, Jesus received the special anointing of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting if you have a look at all of the Gospels, they all record this same information. At Jesus' baptism, each member of the Godhead, the three members of the Trinity were present. Have you noticed that? God in his fullness was there, represented by each member of the Trinity. Jesus was there in bodily form as he came out of the water. Jesus the Son. The Holy Spirit was there. It tells us in the scripture that the Holy Spirit descended upon him. Heaven was opened and Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. John the Baptist saw something too, as recorded in the Gospel of John. Uh, we're not exactly sure what he saw. It does say here um, that it was uh, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. It wasn't an actual dove. We often have pictures, don't we, of the Holy Spirit as a dove. But uh, it wasn't a dove and it wasn't some kind of ghostly uh, form. Um, the, Holy the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form, in whatever form that was, like a dove. Uh, the Holy Spirit could be seen, we're not sure by who or by how many people, but it does foreshadow the coming of the Holy Spirit into the lives of the believers as recorded there in Acts chapter 2. So Jesus the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and then the voice from heaven, the voice of the Father, and a significant declaration, this is my son, listen to him, he's the one I love. And that links us right back to Psalm 2. This is one of the beautiful things about the scriptures, that there's continuity right through, because back in the psalm, Psalm chapter 2, um, a, a classic psalm, picked up in um, Handel's work, Messiah, why do the nations rage, you know, the kings of the earth shake their fists at God. And in Psalm chapter 2, we're reminded that Ultimately, uh, the rulers of the earth will need to submit to him. Kiss the son, the psalm says, lest he be angry with you. This is my son, God says. This is the one. Look at him, bow before him, worship him. I am pleased with him. Baptism, the baptism of Jesus is, in many respects, as we see from the scripture, the starting point of his, um, of his ministry. He spent perhaps... 30 years, uh, growing up, living amongst the people. His baptism is the moment uh, that changes uh, his life from being what looks to lots of people, just an ordinary Galilean, into uh, the one who undertook that ministry, into Jesus the Messiah. It's the starting point for his ministry, a step of obedience to the Father that led him to the cross uh, that ultimately means that he does reign and rule. As we think about the baptism of Jesus, it's significant for us because the, uh, the baptism of Jesus actually gives us um, some authority or gives, gives authority to the idea of baptism as we know it today. As I said, it's not just a ritual that was made up by the Anabaptists. It's not something that John the Baptist thought of. It has deep roots in Jewish history, but Jesus injected it with, with special and new meaning. If we have a look at 
the statement that we did a couple of weeks ago in Matthew where Jesus in his great commission said to his disciples go into all the world uh, baptizing all the nations in the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. The fact that Jesus himself was baptized provides strong impetus for that sacrament. It's Jesus again identifying himself with those that he commissioned to ministry. And it reminds us an important point too that as Christians our lives ought to be followed, uh, ought to be uh, shaped, ought to follow the teaching and example of Jesus. Now it's true to say there are probably some times that we shouldn't follow the example of Jesus and I've used this one before so forgive me for those who've heard it before. You remember those little bracelets, what would Jesus do? The question I used to ask was how on earth would we know what Jesus is going to do in any given situation anyway? But let's just say someone was experiencing, and I, uh, again, forgive me for using this illustration another time, uh, experiencing some eyesight issues, what would Jesus do? Get a bit of mud and slap it on their eyes. That's what Jesus did. That might not go down so well. Put that aside, hold on to this. There are some things that Jesus has done that we ought to emulate, that we ought to reflect in our lives. As his disciples and his followers, our lives ought to be based around the life that he lived and the principles that he taught. And the fact that Jesus was baptised does actually give a greater authority to the sacrament of baptism. And likewise, the fact that Jesus did this that we come to now, the Lord's Supper, when he gathered with his disciples in that room just before he went to the cross, gives us some authority, some impetus to do this, to gather around the Lord's table. And we're going to do that um, today too. One of the points that Matt made just a couple of weeks ago, a very simple but very meaningful point is this, as we think about baptism, as we think about physical baptism, the baptism in water, it points to a deeper spiritual reality, the transformation of the heart. This communion that we share in here today, and we will do that in just a few moments, points to a deeper spiritual reality. This bread and this cup is very ordinary in and of itself, but it actually points to the body and the blood of Christ that was given for us. And so as we take this bread, as we take this cup, our reflection is not just on these elements, but on who it actually is communicating to us and what it is that Jesus has done for us. I'm going to invite you to participate with us today in this act of communion. This table is open to anyone here who loves the Lord Jesus, anyone who has experienced that transformation of the heart, anyone who has, if we use the language that we've been using this past few weeks, experienced that baptism of the Holy Spirit, the conversion of the heart, the change that God does in us when we become part of his kingdom community. If you'd like to join us, you're welcome to do that today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we welcome you to be part of our time together, just to remain in your seat quietly. Uh, that's fine. As has been the case this past couple of weeks too, um, it's appropriate for me to say, as we've been reflecting on baptism, there's been uh, a number of folks who've indicated that they would like to talk about baptism, that they would like to plan towards being baptised, and likewise, that invitation is out there again today. If Jesus is speaking to anyone here, we would welcome a conversation about that to help you perhaps take that step of obedience to overcome perhaps the fear or the anxiety or the resistance that there might have been, uh, we would be glad to talk about what God's been doing in your life. 
and after the service, as is always the case, there'll be people available to pray for you, to pray with you uh, for needs that you may have or others in your family or friends or neighbours or community might have. And even in that space, if you want to have that conversation about baptism, we welcome that. I'm going to pray and then invite you to come and join uh, participating in this table, this Lord's Supper that reminds us of Jesus' work for us. There's uh, bread here and cup. What I encourage you to do, people over this side, just file through this way and back up the side. People over this way, over there and up. Uh, and then eat the bread together. Uh, sorry, eat the bread when you get that. Hold on to the cup so that we might uh, drink that together as a sign of our unity in Christ. Our music team's going to come and just play quietly in the background because it does take a while for a congregation of this size to cycle through and that's fine. We want to create this time as a time of reflection, a time of contemplation, a time of meditation, a time of being quiet before God. So let's create that space by praying. Father, we thank you again for the stories that we have recorded in your word, this story of the baptism of Jesus, anchored in the broader context of the ministry of John, informative, important in terms of uh, something that we might then follow in our lives as faithful disciples too. And God, as we come to this table of communion today, we thank you for the bread and for the cup that we share, for that constant reminder of the body of Christ given for us, the blood of Christ shed for us. And Lord, just as um, in... In the case of this bread on the table, there is yeast. We pray that you will help us to be yeast in our world, to be leaven in the community that we are part of. And as we take the cup too, Lord, we thank you that the blood of Christ continues to transform. It's changed us. May it change others in our world too. Lord, we thank you for this sacrament that is so important to us, one of the two ordinances of the church that we celebrate, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.